and where I think is one of the most important facets of constructing urban living shorelines is this ability for them to serve as educational and stewardship tools to connect people with the water in places where a lot of times people have been told to largely be afraid of the water. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Hey, podcast listeners. We're about to listen to an interview that Tony did with an expert in living shorelines. But before we did that, I wanted to look at some comments and read them from listeners who've been reaching out to us. I'll start off with an email discussion I had with Julie Dunlap about the title to our episode, quote, Science versus the Cat Hoarders, unquote. We had too long an exchange to relate here, but the concern was that the title, quote, gives away the position of the podcast host before evidence is presented about the role of cats in wildlife destruction, unquote, and sets science up as a biased position to start with. Julie also recommended we discuss challenges harmonizing multiple uses in public green spaces with conservation goals, in particular, mountain biking in nature reserves, and that sort of thing. This is a hot topic in Philadelphia parks, and frankly, a bit of a trigger for Tony and me. So perhaps we will tackle that in the future. Thanks, Julie, for writing us. We also got a great email from Susan Grimbley suggesting we do an episode about urban robins. That sounds neat. And I'll chip in the idea that it would be fun to do one both about American urban robins and European urban robins, two bird species not related to each other at all, but both comfortable living around humans and adapting to cities. Last, I will mention a note from listener John Paul Peter from Kentucky, who says he particularly likes the episode about, or particularly likes episodes about outdoor cats, and pointed out that many of the cats people try to adopt from maintained stray populations end up having cat illnesses. In particular, he mentioned um, feline leukemia or FIV, and ultimately these cats have to be put down. And so these outdoor populations serve as reservoirs for those illnesses. John asked if we'd done any episodes about urban bats. We did do one about bat rescue, but I do think, now that he mentions it, that we are overdue for an actual episode about urban bat natural history or ecology. If a listener out there is an urban bat researcher, please drop us a note at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. We'd love to get you on the podcast. Thanks again for everybody for writing, and let's get on with the episode. I'll tell you what. Hi, welcome to, this might be the Irv Wildlife Podcast, this might be Nature's Hype Man, but regardless, it's part of the Wildlife Observer Network, and I'm here with an old friend of mine, uh, Josh Moody, is that how you like to be called, or is it Joshua? Josh is fine. Yeah, Josh Moody, uh, you know, sometimes people, when they get professional, they, they use their full name. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I don't know pretty, if that's... Pretty a, relaxed that way. Uh, I was just laughing because I had to check my phone, I had to stop the recording briefly because... I decided to make banana bread and, and Josh will laugh because um, we've been having some trouble mostly on my all entirely on my end about scheduling this because I'm bad at uh, um, remember remembering I have ADD and I have sometimes I'm bad at remembering appointments and especially bad when I don't, when it's such a weird time in society right now where I don't necessarily know what day of the week it is, is we had a holiday. So I'm like Tuesday is, you know, like I, I would have worked the full day and then there'd be the next day. And then it was like, no, we'll have off 
on Monday and it's, but it's weird to be off because I'm home anyway. So it's <laughs> strange. And then like, I thought, so I thought to, uh, we were doing this yesterday, but it's today. And then of course, another example of my, how I need to get to me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to make banana bread. And I'm like, yeah, I have plenty of time to make it, but I don't have, I have to take it out of the oven, uh, you know, in 55 minutes. Uh, so I just had to confirm with the missus that she was getting the banana bread out. Well, if it's a little well done, you can always put a little ice cream on it to help. Uh, yes. You know. And we got some last night, you know, we did the. You're all set. The, you got a backup plan. Yeah. Have you been doing the Amazon, uh, the, the, the prime now from Whole Foods? No. It'll make you never want to go to the grocery store again. Like I go to the grocery store now and I want to, I am livid. I, I'm so angry. I'm like so frustrated. It's just, it's so nice to just type what you want in. You can really manage your budget. Yeah. You look yeah. at the price in the cart and then, yeah. And like the, it, there's a little bit of a charge, but honestly what you save a waste of food makes up for it. But we're here to talk about living shorelines, right? Um, um, so you're the you're like a pioneer punk rocker in in getting in getting academic. I think you were like of our at least of our crew of right. like our of our generation. So uh, I know Josh from the punk scene, um, and I think he was like one of the first to actually like go back to school and get academic. And you went you got a PhD, am I correct? Yeah, I uh, I got my bachelor's in biology from Temple. I got a master's in ecology from Rutgers. And then my PhD is from Drexel in environmental science. That is awesome. Um, and you and you started back. You weren't like you. You took a little break between like, like you didn't. You went a little bit later, right? You weren't. Oh like, yeah, I yeah. took. Uh, I call it my twenty semesters off. I, t- yeah. I went back to school at, at twenty eight. I started at actually CCP, and then transferred over to Temple from there. I did I, the exact exact same thing, um, yeah. but at like in my thirties, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was close 28. I think that was, uh, in, um, uh, let's see, 22, about 2007 or I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, like 2004, 2003. Nice. I called it my, um, 14 year rock and roll vacation, so. <laughs> yeah. but it's cool. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, An exhausting vacation though. It is. It is. It's funny when you realize, you know, you're so against like going, like living a normal life the idea of like a 40 hour week um, and only weekends off is like frightening when you're like a um, 19 year old punk rocker. Yeah. But then after like, you know, work in security um, <laughs> uh, till three in the morning. And then like, you know, maybe like having to go right from that to a demo job because you got to make money when the opportunities come to make money, you got to do it. And you're like, you know, getting your, you know, blowing your knee out as a bike messenger. You're like, Huh. But you know what? I, I think that that sort of coming from the punk scene really puts you in a good frame of mind for doing environmental work. Because when you think about it, in environmental work, there's nothing for certain. There's no replicates. Things are always changing. You constantly have to adapt and deal with situations as they arise. And you've got to think out of the box constantly. So if you're not used to security and things being neat and organized, this, this kind of work won't give you a heart attack right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Amen. And I've told a story before, but my first field gig, I went up to uh, New York city to uh, interview with uh, uh, Robert Rockwell, who we've actually had on this uh, podcast already about 
I'm working at Snoogie's up in the Arctic and he, uh, I was doing his interview with him and he only asked me a little bit about birds. He started asking me more questions about like, um, what I would do if we're snowed, you know, if it's fought, we're working in the densest polar bear population in the world and there's fog. You can't go outside because you can't see the white, the giant white predator is going to eat you. Right. And so like, what are you going to do for, if we're fogged in for four days? Like, do you like to cook? Do you play cards? And, I, I'm, and I'm like, he wants to know if I can get along, if he can get along with me. And I said, you know what? I'm in a band. I toured the world. I'm stuck in a van with four other guys. I know how to get along with people. I'm like, I'm what you call a road dog. And he yeah. goes, road dog. I like that. Let's do it. And he took me up there. So it's funny that you bring up the van because when we interview people and we're hiring people, you know, but there's some people that I work with that really focus on the resumes, but the interview for me is the biggest thing. And anyone that I work with who listens to this, I call it the, it's, it's the get in the van test. Yeah. Because if you can't sit in a room and get along and engage, and you're not going to be able to sit in a van with them for like five hours round trip going to field sites, it may not be a good fit. And so that personality alignment I find is key to having a really good creative team. For yeah. Sure. And I think, yeah, it's the total get in the van. <laughs> and, you know, being what I do, um, I get asked to go to um, schools um, for like career days and to talk to kids about like to do a career mentoring. And the one thing I always bring up is like, because I don't think the, I see the other people go ahead of me and I'm like, they're not saying the thing that they, sh- there's something being missed here. And that is like, you got to present yourself as someone that people can get along with. And you got to present yourself like you're interested in the job that you're doing now, because I feel like so many kids are like, they present themselves like, this is just a way station to get somewhere else. And like, mm-hmm. and no one's going to want to hire you for that. And no one's going to want to hire you if you don't seem like you're a fun, nice person to get along with. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, I think maybe we lucked out and in, in coming from the background we came from, we were so being uh, letting our, our regular personality come through was so ingrained with us. We didn't really have an option on how necessarily we were going to present ourselves. It was going to kind of come through anyway. So we might've ended up in good positions because we connected with people just naturally the way that we've always connected with people. But I sometimes feel bad for, you know, younger people coming up and they're trying to figure out, you know, you know, who should I be in this interview? Who do they want to see? Or, you know, or, you know, what do I want to project? And, and you know, I, I, at least I know when I interview people, I at least try to create an environment where we can sort of, you know, break down the walls a little bit and they end up getting comfortable and just you can start to see that, you know, what they relax into it. And, and I find a lot of the times when you work with people, because I, I, most of the people I work with are a lot younger than me that, you know, and, and my, actually my boss and my mentor, Daniel Krieger's like that too. She just set such a good tone and people became so relaxed that, you know, you could really just get a feel for who each other were. And, and you know, once people get comfortable in a situation, I, th- I think they really do the best and, and they're mo- the, the things they're most interested in as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of things you're most interested in, so you, 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 you do Living Sure. We're, we're talking about Living Sure lines and we'll probably go from there. But let's, let's start yeah. with that um, and uh, tell us about, you know, your organization. Um, and what, what your main uh, focus is and how it fits into sure. everything. Well, uh, so I'm the restoration programs manager at Partnership for the Delaware Estuary. And 
Partnership for the Delaware Estuary is uh, one of the 28 national estuary programs around the country. So we're the estuary program for the Delaware River and Bay. And what that really means is it's the tidal portion that goes from salt water up to fresh water and, you know, uh, and the land that drains into that area. So, um, you know, because we're an estuary program, we get a little bit of our funding through the EPA's Clean Water Act. And so we're a clean water organization. All the work that we do in some way relates back to clean water, healthy habitats, strong communities, that kind of thing. And so um, when, I was, when I was at Rutgers uh, uh, University, I was working at a shellfish lab there. And the science director at Partnership for the Delaware Estuary was interested in bringing this technique called living shorelines, which had been more commonly used down south in the U.S., uh, up into this area. Now, I was working at a shellfish lab, and my advisor, uh, Danielle, or, or my now my, now my, my uh, director, Danielle, she was, uh, um, she's a shellfish ecologist by training as well. And, and the thoughts that her and Dave Bushick, the director of the Haskin Lab, had was, well, for living shorelines, what we really want to do is figure out a way that we can uh, use the local ecology in this area to take some of the applications of living shorelines that have been used and sort of make them our own here. Now, previously, living shorelines, especially down in Maryland and Virginia, was really a, a particular thing. It was almost like a rock sill along an eroding shoreline with, with a lot of uh, wetland vegetation planted on top of it. So it, it almost be, become living shoreline synonymous with a technique, if you will. Now, the idea here by bringing it up here is, uh, you know, we wanted to see how many different how many different ways we could think about living shorelines? Is it really just a singular technique or is it something a little bit more? So really the test that we started out with in around 2008 in the Delaware Bay was really looking at the relationship between rib mussels and salt marsh core grass, uh, Spartina alternifloria. It's typically a monoculture along most salt marshes. Uh, grows up into the high marsh, a little bit taller down where it's flooded more frequently. Um, and so rib mussels in this grass have a, a really synergistic relationship where the grass provides a place for the mussels to burrow down in. The mussels being a filter feeder, they pull a lot of nutrients out. Some they keep to build tissue, some they deposit in the ground, which becomes fertilizer for the plants. So you get this kind of positive feedback loop where the bigger the plant gets, the more mussels can kind of gather around and attach to it. And then the more they fertilize, the bigger the plants get. And as the mussels, using these protein complexes called bissel threads, which are extremely strong, bind to the roots of those plants, they can help to hold shoreline edges together. So the idea was to take this natural sort of mutualistic relationship and use that as the foundation, as the living point to help, you know, curve some of the erosion in living shoreline applications. So, you know, we... We've worked on that with Rutgers University for a, a number of years. We have a number of different living shorelines out there. And, um, and, and what we, I think we really served as the organization that I work for, Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, sort of like a testing lab. You know, we get these ideas, these research questions. We go out and we try to implement them, learn from them, and pass them on. And now this particular technique of living shoreline has been used uh, by a few different organizations in Delaware and New Jersey. But 
we typically we use these in lower energy areas and you know not all areas are the same as we start to move into these urban areas these highly energetic areas you know big ships are going by um but there's a whole ecology around them you know not a single technique is going to work everywhere in every location so what is our opportunities for living shoreline applications across a variety of diverse habitats right and so Whereas in Maryland, to sort of loop this back, a living shrine became a particular type of installation. It was a particular type of materials oriented in a particular manner in a particular type of location to uh, address a particular circumstance, erosion. We in this area, and when I say we, it's, you know, uh, our organization works very closely with the states of Delaware New Jersey, a lot of the other academic institutions and NGOs in the area, such as TNC, Riverfront North Partnership up in Philadelphia. Um, the, the sort of consensus we came to is that, you know, if a living shoreline's function is to promote life, it's really not about the types of materials that you put in somewhere. For something to be a living shoreline, it needs to be functioning as a living shoreline. So the concept of the living shoreline in this area has started to move away from a specific type of tactic, but more into this idea of function. Something functions as a living shoreline, it's providing ecological uplift. And now what that does is that opens the door to a whole variety of different tactics that could be considered living shorelines, because ultimately at the end of the day, a living shoreline is an engineered structure. You are taking some materials, you are putting them in a location, you want that to you know, typically attenuate erosion or maybe help build elevation. But at the same time, you want it to promote life. So you put these materials down, they're going to affect the physical conditions, which will affect the biological conditions at the site, which will then feed back. So by, by thinking of a living shoreline in terms of its functionality, we get away, we open the door for all these different techniques to be considered living shorelines if, they're designed with ecological components that can support life. And how do we know if they are meeting their goals, their ecological goals? How do we know if they're functioning? And this brings it, it really sort of dovetails it with uh, the scientific method is you need to monitor all of these installations. You need to know ecologically how it's performing before you did anything to the area. And you need to track some metrics that are related to your goals afterwards. And by doing that, we can see if things are functioning as living trunks and if they're providing ecological function, then, and they're providing ecological uplift, it may not matter the constituents that, that comprise the structure itself. It's really what it's doing. And now you gotta be careful, right? Cause you don't want people putting a bunch of potted plants on top of bulkheads and calling it a living shoreline. Look, I got grass growing on this wall. You really wanna think holistically about the whole ecology in the area and see how this structure is, is uh, the function and the effects of it are radiating out through the variety of habitats it's placed within. But what it does is it allows, thinking of it as a function, allows us to address the, the ecological implications of hard armoring in areas like urban habitats, where you, it's going to be really hard to do something soft, just as the way energy is bouncing around. So, if we're going to try to build elevation with sea level rise, we're going to try to stem erosion and keep critical habitats there under certain energetic conditions, we're going to need to heavily engineer stuff. 
But if we can make a priority of those designs, also enhancement of ecological function while we're doing this, then we start to get into a place where we can move forward in these areas and really building out these habitats and uh, creating the, the proper conditions for them to persist under these, under these different areas. So living shorelines is always a developing field. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we've worked down in the Delaware Bay, more natural habitats. I can talk a little bit about some work we're doing up in the Schuylkill River, across the Delaware River in Camden. There's group uh, Riverfront North who's been doing some work up in Northeast Philadelphia. And um, what our role, what we, our, our partnership for the Delaware Estuary, how we view our role is to sort of bring together these different groups whose skill sets are needed to create something that's functional, bring them together, sort of pilot these ideas. Our organization and one of my, my roles in it is to develop monitoring plans, collect data, analyze data. So design these experiments, implement them, collect data on them, learn from them, and then help, uh, uh, help promote the techniques that uh, there's evidence for them working. That is, this is um, really, really cool stuff you're doing here. Um, and can you walk us through some of the, um, I'd say, ecosystem uh, services that these are providing? Sure. A typical, so we've, um, we, we've authored a couple of documents. One is one in Delaware um, with partners at TNC and New Jersey DEP. And these are, um, and one also in Delaware with the Delaware Living Shorelines Committee. And both of these groups are uh, groups that have put together these documents for groups of diverse stakeholders from public, private, NGO, academic sectors. And, and what both of these documents do is outline a couple of specific goals, different goals that Living Shorelines can have. So in terms of ecosystem function, you know, one goal that uh, Living Shorelines can always have is erosion control. And now, depending on what's being eroded, there's quite a few different um, uh, functions that could be affected there. You can be thinking about things like carbon sequestration through vegetation uh, proliferation, you know, storage below ground in roots and dead biomass. You can think about habitat creation and persistence for different types of uh, fauna that require certain types of habitat for different life stages. You can think about the intertidal portions of them as helping to support fisheries as nursery habitats for young fish. You can think about uh, nitrogen cycling, not only through the plants taking nitrogen out of the water, you know, through their production of biomass, but if you incorporate shellfish into living shorelines, which is something our organization does, you know, we have um, about four or five of us all have backgrounds in shellfish ecology and physiology. Shellfish are a great ecosystem engineer, so they can help build benthic infauna habitats, which are great for fish foraging. They can help cycle nutrients from the water column down to the benthos, also to the vegetation to remove those from the system, reducing algal blooms. Um, you can think about living shorelines providing resiliency along coasts by helping to build elevation and trap sediment. So there's a variety of different services that living shorelines could provide. And one of the things that uh, we like to talk about a lot is when we're, when we're approached with a location, someone's like, you know, all right, I've got an issue here. And the issue is typically erosion 
or something that they really want to be there other than the land is disappearing, some type of habitat. You know, we're interested in doing something here. We, we really want to stop this erosion, but, you know, we just don't want to, you know, throw some rock down. You know, what can we do ecologically? And so what's really important to create a, a really good functioning living shoreline is to understand the ecological, uh, uh, the ecological conditions, what currently exists and what is possible to exist in that area, what would be natural to exist there um, for that specific site. Because once you understand how the site is functioning now and you understand what could be enhanced, you can start setting goals. You know, which are these goals? What do we really need? Flood reduction. Are we looking at a, an elevation-based goal? Are we uh, talking about erosion? We have an erosion control-based goal or a habitat enhancement goal. But what's nice is once you outline that, then you can start thinking about all those different associated services that come along with it. And a lot of them are gonna have to do with nutrient sequestration, um, habitat proliferation, and especially uh, uh, refuge for all different types of juvenile uh, you know, animals, fish, flora, fauna, you know, fauna of different types. So I think living shorelines can meet a bunch of different goals and typically they, they meet a variety of them. One living shoreline um, that we're developing over in Camden, New Jersey with their municipal utility authority, the wastewater treatment plant, you know, part of its function, there's gonna be freshwater mussel beds there that will help with nutrient reduction. You know, not only will they help pull nutrients out of the water column, they'll help increase benthic infauna, which will be better fish foraging habitat. The vegetation in and of itself will be nice habitat for birds that come through. So there's the service of providing the habitat for the bird, but then there's also the service for the community, people who like to look at the birds. They can come out and have a place where they can, you know, you know, foster their stewardship potential along these shorelines. And, and actually, to, to take a little side tangent, that I think is one of the services of living shorelines that constantly uh, is either overlooked or maybe undervalued. And where I think is one of the most important facets of constructing urban living shorelines is this ability for them to serve as educational and stewardship tools to connect people with the water in places where a lot of times people have been told to largely be afraid of the water or that it's like a dirty place and you shouldn't go near it. Or you shouldn't worry about it. And um, there's a lot of opportunity to foster that stewardship through education, through connection. You know, by increasing these habitats, you give people something to look at, something to learn about. And then, you know, you're an educator, you know as well as me. Once people understand something a little bit, they start to care about it. And then once they start to care about it, they're sort of interested in, in protecting it. <laughs> so yes. a, a lot of different, a lot of different benefits, you know, spanning a lot of different topics for living people. Yeah, um, so this hits close to home. Uh, a lot of what you're saying, I don't know if you, I don't know if you know this about me. Probably do, but I, I, grew, I actually grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. Yeah, I grew up in Wissanoming and then Mayfair, and we would bike down um, to the to the river um, to, to go fishing, and there's, there, I mean, there there's no natural shore. There's like very little natural shoreline on the Delaware, and there's very little natural shoreline. Um, on the uh, Schuylkill River, right? So, yeah. and like you said, you go down there and there's just no, you know, it's just a concrete drop off. And, and um, so in Philadelphia, unfortunately, 
and Camden as well, um, which is a, a city across the river. Remember, not just us listening to this, right? There's going to be people who don't know about Philadelphia. Um, and um, Camden is kind of like Philly's Gary, Indiana, right? Or like Philly's Compton, right? It's a, it's um, it's it's not a suburb. It's a it's it's a, a city that's like directly across the river from Philadelphia. So it's just as urban as Philadelphia. It just happens to be in New Jersey, and so the, um. I guess because we were old, an old city, we've developed this. Uh, our riverbanks have been industrialized, and there's very little places you actually go in and enjoy a, a beautiful view of the river. Right, it, you go down there, and it's just concrete. So uh, I love these ideas of these living shorelines, um, providing some you know aesthetic value, which is not to be understated. So what? Um, how do those? Um, one thing I've always been curious about is when you mentioned birds, I assume it's more like herons and, and like waiting, like, uh, like herons and egrets and those, right? Um, shorebirds need mudflats. Um, is there any way to like, kind of like make an artificial mudflat um, or man-made mudflat? The, the problem that is because if they're too static, they'll get covered in vegetation and then it'll be more like heron habitat rather than, shorebird habitat is that is something possible yeah well i mean i think there's a a a couple of things there and and i I think one of the main overarching philosophical discussions that constantly happens and uh around living shoreline implementation is typically if you're going to build something somewhere you're building it on top of something else right so you're always you're always involved in a habitat trade-off issue pretty much so if you're thinking about, okay, this marsh has been eroding, well, now it is a mudflat habitat. The mudflat habitat has a lot of ecological service and value to it. So one of the things in thinking about appropriate places to put in living shrines is you don't want to end up in a place where you're, you know, the robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. We're going to vastly reduce one habitat in order to promote another one. Um, but typically... Uh, because of the erosion rates in a lot of the areas where this happens, I mean, some places down in the Delaware Bay are, are losing up to like six feet of marsh a year. So you have a, a, a lot of times an overwhelming uh, uh, availability of mudflat habitat. And so the, the, the small amounts of marsh that you put in aren't really skewing that balance too much. But you do want to be careful because if it is an area that is being heavily utilized by something, you may not want to mess with it, right? Because erosion is also a natural process. Erosion and accretion should be happening, but they should be happening in some sort of balance. A place should be eroding somewhere and a place should be accreting somewhere. So it is important, you know, the first thing to say is definitely it's important to think about the location where you're where you're putting something because you are always converting habitat. But it's interesting when you mention like, oh, could we just build out a mudflat living shoreline? See, a lot of people associate a living shoreline with vegetation because that was largely, you know, how, what they were used for. You were building a marsh on top of something. But if we start to think about a living shoreline as a measure of function, all we're going to be doing to make it a living shoreline is you are doing something to the area, installing something to create some sort of ecological benefit that could persist. Now, when you think about flooding in an area, 
and you think about water getting into areas, one good way to keep water from getting into areas is to build a hill. You know, it takes a lot of energy for water to go up a hill. It typically would rather spread out than, than go up. It needs pressure behind it. So one of the types of things that we've been talking about working with um, is this idea. So you might build a vegetated portion of your living shoreline, but then out in front of it, you may want to be augmenting the slope. Right? You're going to keep it a mudflat habitat. You still want it to be underwater, but you want it to sort of keep water at bay. But that mudflat itself <clears throat> can be part of that living shoreline. So uh, I think building unvegetated slopes would most certainly be a component. And as we get into you know, these larger living shorelines, a lot of the pilot projects that have been done you know, are pretty small, you know, 80 feet, 150 feet, 200 feet, you know, there's a lot of proof of concept. But as we start as a region getting into these bigger, larger designs, which is the direction that we're going in Delaware, New Jersey, for sure, and, and Pennsylvania is starting as well, uh, is what we're going to see is a living shoreline is really, if it's along a, 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 a greater stretch, is going to be a whole suite of subtax. I think a perfect example of that is right now in Philadelphia behind the Walmart along the Delaware River, along uh, four of the piers there, the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation is, you know, involved in redesigning that waterfront there to serve multiple goals, habitat, bird habitat, fish habitat, mussel habitat, and, and recreational uh, opportunity as well. And when you start to see these bigger ones, they're going to have all these subcomponents, subtitle portions, you know, focusing on SAV and muscles, maybe intertidal portions with this augmented slope that would be good for uh, birds foraging at low tide, as well as vegetative portions. Now in the Delaware Bay, you know, thinking about red knots and horseshoe crabs and things like that who prefer sandy habitats, uh, the American Littoral Society down there does a lot of great work doing uh, beach restoration, specifically, you know, targeting, you know, red knot foraging habitat, trying to, you know, enhance that and make it appropriate. And I think all those different goals can easily fall under this umbrella of living shorelines. As long as you can prove it, you got to be evaluating it. You've got to be looking at it and you need a goal to, to track your change against. And if it's functioning as, as, and it's supporting life, and they can do that in a myriad of ways, this is, this is a living shoreline to me. So mostly you're doing areas where um, the, the natural shoreline has been eroded. Are you doing work where the body of water, the river, has been channelized? And like, like the huge stretches of Schuylkill are just all concrete. Is there any way to like, I know I've seen some like floating like structures. Um, do they, are they considered living shorelines or is there any way to like, um, you know, I'm thinking like shorebirds whatnot, you know, migrating up over Philadelphia. Like we, the, some of the areas that are protected would be along the, the Schuylkill or Delaware or um, like East Park Reservoir. Mm -hmm. where it's, um, but there, but the, the banks are too steep or, or concrete. Yeah. So is there any way to like mount something that could provide that kind of habitat or is that, you know, out of the scope of what we're talking about here? No, no, I think it's, I think it's within the scope, but I think this is a new area and I can talk about two specific projects in terms of like the, the, the bulkhead itself. 
like this is sort of a, a greening up the gray kind of thing. And, and you run into this with homeowners a lot, whether people have bulkheads or rocks, things like that. A lot of times people don't want to take them out, but they wouldn't mind converting them into habitat if they can. But also in certain places, it doesn't make any sense to take them out <laughs> because you know you, you, need, you have critical infrastructure behind them. You need them to stay there, but what can we do on top of them in front of them? So uh, directly to augment the bulkhead itself, there's actually some, uh, some people down in Maryland and some people in Delaware now that are working with these sort of marsh organ type of things. It, it's almost like, you know how in, a, in the backyard of the city you can hang something on your wall where it's got all the different plants? It's like the bio yeah. wall and diversity. Yeah. So people are looking at different things like that. But, and that's, and that's one, one method, whether that itself is a living shoreline or more of the just like, you know, putting plants on gray infrastructure, I think would more fall in a second category. But if you're in an intertidal area where the tide does go out and you have this area in front of it and some subtitle area to work in, you can do something. So the um, Camden County Municipal Utility Authority in Camden, New Jersey, that we're working, we're working with a private firm, uh, we're working with them, and then they contracted to a private firm, Stantec, to design this, and we're, we're the ones that are um, uh, making sure that it's ecologically sound and helping develop the habitats. This is a giant 20-foot seawall, goes about 1,200 feet, and there's nothing in front of it. Some soft mud, some rocks, it's poor foraging habitat, no SA submerged aquatic vegetation community, you don't really see anything going on there. So this is one of those examples of having to potentially use techniques that in and of themselves may not be considered green, but because of their presence, you can get this radiating ecological uplift. So the current design for this location is there would be a series of uh, um, sort of uh, uh, wave breakwaters set out from this, set out a pretty good distance from this, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe about 100 feet in front of it. And so what those are going to do, these rock breakwaters, is they're going to attenuate shipping waves. Now, why is nothing there? Well, because these giant barges are going by and the energy's hitting these walls, like you say in the Schuylkill, and it's just bouncing everywhere. It's, it's, it's digging out anything that's going to grow on the substrate. It's just creating an extremely inhospitable environment for anything that persists. But you start to deal with that energy first. So you put something in to deal with the energy. Now that the energy is attenuated behind it, in the subtitle portion, in the lee of these uh, um, uh, breakwaters, is perfect mussel habitat. So you install freshwater mussel pens down in this area. That's going to start bringing fish in and things like that. Freshwater mussels are also, you know, very well associated with enhanced aquatic vegetation growth. They help to clear the water a little bit. They pass the nutrients on. And now once the energy is reduced and you have this bit of nutrient cycling going on behind it, you start to see some sediment probably getting trapped back there. The elevation is going to raise a little bit. You can start planting that and then you start getting an emerging marsh come out there. So it's almost like this succession of habitats. You, you look at this, the primary problem is going to be the energy. You do something to reduce the energy and as that gets reduced, you can do something else to build up a subhabitat. And then you can get this ecological succession going on behind it. And over time, you can start to build up a natural habitat that would be there if the energetic conditions were not in play. And that, even though there's a bulkhead behind it, I would consider a living shoreline. You've engineered something, you've put it into place, and if the different plant and animal communities are persisting and enhanced as a result of that, 
you now have a living shoreline. Another example is at Bartram's Gardens in Philadelphia. So partnership for Delaware Estuary where I work is in the process of building uh, the world's first mussel hatchery aimed at nutrient mitigation. So typically freshwater mussel hatcheries are, uh, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife runs quite a few of them, and they're, they're there to help propagate threatened and endangered species. But freshwater mussels are one of the most endangered and imperiled animals in America. You know, there's a whole variety of taxa that are more or less gone that used to be uh, uh, natural to this area. But there's still quite a few common species. So at Bartram's, uh, PDE's working uh, with them to build this hatchery there. I think we break ground maybe late this year, early next year, uh, to propagate mussels, to, to put them out, to filter nutrients to get removed to help pull nutrients out of the water. But because of that, we're working on a few different things with that. And so they're in one of those areas, right, where they have the natural shoreline, but it's surrounded by all these seawalls, <laughs> right? The whole yeah. river's armored. So what do we do there? Well, so we're working on a living shoreline there that we're going to start putting in the first components of this summer. The first thing we need to do is we need to see is if we can get uh, the subaquatic things, uh, plants and animals to stay in place. So what we're using is we're using these uh, containers of shell to, again, like a rock breakwater might do, but we're using a little bit more of a, a natural substrate. And, or I guess rocks are natural, but a little bit more... Uh, Habitat friendly shell, you know, has all those little, uh, uh, you know, holes and pathways through it that all sorts of little invertebrates and uh, different types of animals can utilize. But anyway, we're going to subtitly put out a series of test structures to see if we can attenuate the energy, stabilize the bottom, and we're going to plant uh, freshwater mussels that we've been producing uh, at, and growing out uh, uh, from our test hatchery and at a variety of different ponds along the gardens, Winterthur and Delaware, we grow these mussels out. And we're going to put them out there. Once we can get the, uh, the, the subtital area a little stabilized, we can get some mussels in there going, then you start moving landward. But it's all about dealing with the most uh, imminent condition that's causing the most problems and then working in a succession. So at a place like that, you wouldn't want to throw in a bunch of plants right away because the energy will just overwhelm them. But we start with that major problem. We start to attenuate that. And then once we get the proper conditions for life, we start trying to enhance that life there and give it a little bit of a jump start. So that's a place where we're going to be doing a lot of different experiments over the next few years. Um, we're working with Army Corps, National Marine Fisheries Service, Philadelphia Water Department, so, uh, uh, and, and Pennsylvania, obviously state of Pennsylvania as well. There's going to be a lot of people keeping an eye on this. We're going to be looking at a lot of different types of information and hopefully be using that to develop sort of a plan for exactly that type of habitat that you're talking about. What are some techniques we can do here? And what's the, what's the mosaic of habitats that could be implemented? And what's the proper order to do that? Because we, the other thing to remember about a living shoreline is, if it's alive, it's not going to be static, right? It's always going to be changing. You're going to have some types of vegetation come and go. You know, some might expand, some habitats might contract. There's going to be a whole lot of changes that could potentially happen as a result of either natural occurrence or, you know, if it's in an urban area, you know, unnatural interference as well. 
So part of the key to this is to implement these different types of habitats, put this mosaic together. So, you know, thinking about niche ecology, if these things work together naturally anyway, as borders change, as things shift, there's going to be something there to take over the space as something starts moving out, or if something contracts, you know, something will always be able to move into that area. So thinking about the holistic ecology and these different types of things is sort of key for these really barren habitats like you're talking about. This is sort of a, a new area that, that uh, we're getting in in this region. And also nationally, urban living shorelines are a, a developing concept. How many um, linear feet do you think, or meters for our global audience, do you think you, um, your organization or has been installed in, in this area? <laughs> Well, how many we've directly installed and that we conduct ongoing research on, it, it's not that much. It's like 1,500, 2,000. Um, it, it's not that big because we typically put out these experiments that we track over time. Now, we have in, our first installation that's still there went out in 2009. So we have installations that are a variety of ages, mostly down in the Delaware Bay and the tributaries more in the brackish water with the salinity somewhere between, you know, maybe nine and 12, focusing on rib mussels, Spartina grass. Um, but this Camden one, the one at Bartram's Garden, and we're actually starting some work up by the Fairmount Waterworks, putting together a conceptual design this year that'll go out for bid, hopefully next year, for installation, are really our first foray into the freshwater urban prism. And these are going to be longer because we're, we're kind of at the point where people want to start working with living shorelines a lot more now than they did in 2009. And also, also to tell you the truth, the regulatory mechanisms are there now to permit these kind of activities that weren't really in place a decade ago. I mean, part of the problem with bringing a new technique into an area Someone's got to permit it. Quite a few people need to, <laughs> need to yeah. permit it. And if there's not the right boxes to check, that can be hard to do. There can be kind of a stalemate there. And, you know, the states of New Jersey, state of Delaware, and now the state of Pennsylvania are really interested and have been, you know, fundamental, foundational partners in moving this forward. So although the, the total amount of shoreline that we've done has been pretty small, we, those are things we've done on our own as research projects. We're now, Living Shorelines are at a place where now we're getting into these more collaborative projects. We're starting to think about bigger areas. So I think we're going to see regional numbers jump pretty significantly in like the next five years. Projects, singular projects are going to be along the magnitude of like a thousand, a thousand feet, you know, 300 meters, you know, plus. So, um, okay. Um, we're, we're getting close to the, an hour now. Um, can you, before we go, um, can you t talk a little bit about climate change and how that, that affects what you're doing? Because um, the sea level rise is happening. Um, I assume that some of your projects could be too far underwater, but you also say that they help mitigate the effects of climate change. So could you uh, elaborate on that, please? Yeah, I mean, this idea of persistence over time and under a change in climate is, is always an ongoing active conversation in terms of living shorelines. 
now that we're starting to talk about doing, you know, bigger projects, you know, that is now getting into part of the design is this project Do we think it's going to be able to trap the sediment. What's the adaptive management plan as water continues to rise? Will this be able to persist? We'll be able to trap enough sediment to be able to keep its elevation. If you're, if you're dealing with an intertidal, if you're dealing with vegetation of any sort, it's going to want to be flooded for some time of the day, and it's going to want to be exposed. So if you're dealing with vegetation that it, it, at all, you're going to want to make sure that it is at a proper elevation within a tidal de- datum. So uh, if you're you know, dealing with this type of vegetation, will you be able to trap the sediment for, for the, um, uh, this living shoreline to grow vertically? And there's a couple of different techniques to do that, or a couple of different considerations. First, is the sediment available? Now, we're lucky. We live in a sediment-rich system. There is, you know, you put your hand three inches down under the water of the Schuylkill or the Delaware, and it's gone. You can't even see it. So there's plenty of sediment out there. But trapping it, that's a whole other issue. This is fast-moving water, and you really need to get water to slow down to release the particles in it. So that's where you get into the engineering. Are you creating baffling are you creating places to slow this water to give the plants the opportunity to do the trapping we have the sediment we have the mechanism to trap and are those going to be able to persist over time so a lot of that is going into the design plans now for sure in terms of living shorelines being able to persist and um so sometimes and in some places under certain engineering you can get a shoreline to keep pace and just work as a natural marsh. Then the question is, is it now a natural marsh or is it still a living shoreline? That's a philosophical question that mm. we'd love to kind of get down the rabbit hole on, but uh, that's sort of up for grabs. But in some places you may have to have do periodic adaptive management. So if you think about a living shoreline, like a garden, right? You got a garden in your backyard, you want to grow things, the things can grow here, but sometimes they need a little bit of attention. And so people had always thought like seawalls and things like that are great because it's like a set it, forget it. You put it in, you walk away. Cool. So they've done it for a long time and now they're realizing they're not that way. They need maintenance to it and they need expensive maintenance. So living shoreline should always be, you know, monitored. You should be evaluating how they're doing. And periodically, depending on the different stressor, you may need to go in periodically and do some uh, adaptation. Say it's reached a point where it needs to grow further, but it's not trapping sediment on its own anymore. Maybe you go in and you put a few things in there to help facilitate the trapping. So those are called adaptive management plans. What are we going to do when something starts going haywire? And nowadays, every living shoreline design that gets permitted should have one of those. There should be benchmarks that you're going for, should be monitoring to see how you're tracking to them, and what are you going to do if you don't. Now, as living shorelines are like sort of an emerging field, we're one of the groups that advocate for adaptive management plans, monitoring plans. It's not always required, but I think the regulatory agencies, both federal and state are getting, they're having the active conversations about what sort of level should be in the statutes and should be required. So adaptive management, you know, living shorelines might be able to do it on your own, but you should probably watch them because you may need to go and intend them a little. In terms of mitigating the effects of climate change, you know, that's, that's an area of research right now. Like how much carbon storage can we expect per linear foot in different habitats? There's a lot of different groups 
And the Natural Estuarian Research Reserve System is one of those primary examples of a national organization doing this type of research. You know, what sort of carbon sequestration can we expect? We're working on it from the shellfish angle, closing that loop of if nitrogen, they're filtering it out, how much gets returned to the environment, how much is long-term removed. So research closing the loops on what we can expect per linear foot or per square meter, however you want to think about it, by different habitat is ongoing. But I think in terms of mitigating climate change. I meant more like the, the actual water level rise. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's literally a physical engineering. You can, en- you can certainly engineer slopes to keep water out. And if you're building in a place that you're trying to mitigate flooding, you just want to keep your eye on it. Make sure if it's trapping sediment and growing with sea level rise and keeping pace, it's good. If it starts falling behind, you might want to get in there and help facilitate trapping a little bit of sediment. So that's going to be an elevation issue or maybe, maybe a hydrologic issue. If water's getting in, can't get out, or water, so much water is coming up in a river, it's pushing its way in. So hydrostatic pressure, that could be an issue too, but we haven't really seen, seen that consideration yet. Well, uh, one final question that I have and you might be the person to answer this. Where does the Delaware Bay actually start? Because the Delaware River basically takes a turn in Philly and then just gets wider and wider and wider and wider and wider. And then at some point they call it the bay. So Yeah. Well, if if you wanna if you wanna think about two physical conditions where you could draw a line, you can think about salinity. And that that that's pretty close to the turbidity maximum as well, where the where the the churning, you know, you get the most uh, turbid water. But the uh, uh, the salinity line is generally around the Delaware Memorial Bridge, based on rainfall each year, you know, drought things like that. If it's a really dry year, uh, you know, the salt might come up a little further. If it's a really wet year, it might push down a little further too. But I think. I don't know if there's a, an exact, you know, overall agreed upon answer, but I would probably go with this generally around the salt line and around the Delaware Memorial Bridge. <laughs> That's where we tend to see the, the vegetation really start to change. And when you say salt line, is, is that going from salt to brackish or from brackish to fresh? From brackish to fresh. So, yeah, if we think about the, the, the salt grain, you know, obviously down in Lewis, Cape May, right there at the entrance of the bay, we have full salt water, and then it decreases coming up. So that would be the place where we, we could consider the uh, uh, freshwater habitat. So blue crabs, I see blue crabs in Philly, uh, the, f- along the river in Philly, even way up in Northeast Philly. So yeah. is that like, is the salt like because of rainfall or what have you come up or they, can they just tolerate a certain level of fresh water? They can tolerate it. We, we see them in uh, uh, Wilmington, Delaware is good bit too. I, I'm I'm like now like mining my brain trying to remember some of the blue crab talks that I've seen because I, blue crabs aren't an area of expertise for me. But uh, uh, it is common to see them, and it's not due to the salinity of the area. It's it's part of their migration or, or part of their movement that has to do with their life cycle and spawn. Things like that. Cool. Is there anything you want to make sure? Yeah, you say before we end that we might not have covered. Hmm. Well, I mean, I 
Well, I, one thing I can mention that's directly urban related is, you know, I, I mentioned a few projects we're getting started with in Philadelphia and, you know, moving living shorelines up into the urbanized freshwater prism is, is a place where we're going to have a lot of activity over the next couple of years. And one of the things we're really interested in doing is a really getting involved with this community stewardship potential of living shrines. We, I mean, a lot of us involved in this are ecologists and we're working on the ecology and working with engineers on the designs. But this nexus, this uh, uh, the uh, environmental justice nexus, the outreach potential, all of that is uh, very high on our radar. And a lot, of the, a lot of the models that we developed at PDE are now starting to include community stewardship metrics to look at the potential for living shoreline in places. So, I'm always happy to hear from people who have an interest in that. We also have a uh, freshwater muscle program that has very strong community engagement uh, 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 portion of that program as well, where they like to get involved with educators. And one of the other things we're going to be doing is hopefully over the next year and a half in Pennsylvania, we'll be helping to develop the, uh, the first uh, PA Living Shorelines Committee. There's one in Delaware. There's basically a group in New Jersey. Now that this work is happening up in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas, we'll be looking to put together a Pennsylvania Living Shoreline Committee, which would comprise a whole suite of different types of practitioners and regulatory agents to keep an open conversation on what, where, what the living shorelines mean to us here, how do we see them developing, and how can we partner and pair the right people on the right projects to get the most out of it. So it'll really be a think tank uh, with application for on the ground work. So I'll keep you informed when we start doing that. And you know, anyone who's interested in being a part of any of those things can just get my email address off the partnership for the Delaware Estuary web webpage and shoot me an email. I wouldn't give a call now. I, I've been really bad about checking my desk phone with the work at yeah. home thing, but <laughs> emails. You know. Well, this might, um intersect with my actually professional career because I'm hoping so. Yeah. Be, well, we were talking about getting some muscles at our facility um, and uh, into college Creek and yeah. Well, and I got to tell you another thing, Tony, is that where there is a pretty big gap in the research is uh, this overlap of uh, bird usage on living shoreline. So Sarah Babulis, who I work closely with on a lot of projects, on this living shoreline we're putting in down in the Delaware Bay, we're going to try to implement a program down there where we're doing, uh, looking at bird use on them as well. There's been a couple studies, but none of them have, that I've seen have, have been real robust. We may contact you about that. But also up in Philadelphia, you know, when we get this Bartram's work going in, which will probably be later this summer, and I'll keep you in the loop on that as well, we, we've got room in the monitoring plan to look to add additional metrics. So if there's something that in terms of birds, we would love to get that in there. And especially if there's uh, a way for like citizen scientists or community groups to look at these too, we can help develop the data sheets, help compile the information and do the analysis for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I help coordinate uh, breeding bird surveys in Philadelphia green spaces. So we could do target at once or that, that'd be, that'd love be it. great. Um, I, could, I could do a lot of it myself. I could also get, you know, organized citizen science um, response to that question i think that'd be great it also sounds like a good phd program at some point you know what I'm saying? <laughs> could be there's yeah. i'll tell you what if people you know people coming up in academic environments right now are thinking about going back to grad school 
there is a lot of questions around living shorelines, a lot of ecological questions, a lot of engineering questions, and a lot of community nexus questions. There's a lot of work, a lot of room for all sorts of research to be done around living shorelines. And what I think makes living shorelines work so exciting is, like I said, it's, you know, at the beginning of this, there's always, you, you never really know what's going to happen. You're really getting in on the ground floor of these new techniques, these new ways of thinking about ecology and engineering and people all working together. So I would encourage anyone who's going back to school or thinking about some sort of graduate research project, you know, to consider some application relative to, to living shorelines, because it's a, a extremely not only ripe area, but it's an area where there's going to be application after you're done. There's a need for it. And it's an area where you'll see that research likely get used. Negative or positive data. Remember, negative data is great data as well. Yep. Well, fantastic. I think that's a great uh, place to end on it. I'm glad we got to connect. I look forward to linking up with you in person at some point. Um, yeah. Everybody, uh, how, how can people um, look at your research? What's the w- website for your organization? Uh, yeah, I should know that, shouldn't I? I believe it's partnership for the Delaware estuary.org. And um, yes, yeah, partnership for or it's Delaware estuary.org. And then uh, on that web page, there's a variety of different drop down menus and personnel. You can get my uh, who we are, you can get my contact information. Under research, you can get um, information about our wetlands programs, our freshwater mussel programs, living shoreline. Uh, programs and also shell recycling. We're involved in shell recycling for use in these projects. So all that information is uh, available there. Fantastic. And for our listeners and viewers, please like subscribe and share on your platform of choice. Uh, Please leave us some positive reviews and you can, you could always tweet at us uh, PMS um, on our Instagram and uh, email us at uh, urban wildlife cast at gmail.com. Thank you, Josh. Look forward to seeing you soon. Um, give my best to your family. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Certainly, man.